How many of you remember those Staples commercials in the early 2000s where they had that, the, that was easy campaign? Anyone remember those? Few hands. Really, the idea, the premise of this uh, campaign was it was easier to get office supplies from Staples than it was to deal with all of the baggage of life. Uh, and so they, it was a joke where you're facing any IT problems or printer problems and it's just a headache. You press that red easy button, it just automatically disappears. Uh, you're dealing with a micromanaging boss who's just getting on your case about everything. Press that easy button and he magically just disappears. Or you know, you have some kids that are squabbling with each other in the basement over a toy. You just press that button and then they automatically disappear for a hot second. Speaking as a young father, I can't relate to that at all. <laughs> but the campaign was such a success because of the idea that we are longing for a life of comfort, a long or a life of ease with peace, with stability, where we have safety and warmth and we can know what to expect. And so as we look at why this campaign was a success, success for ourselves, it's also because of the fact that we are longing for just a place of just a life of comfort, uh, where we are not threatened by outside forces, we are not influenced by outside voices, and we can just have the safety and the comfort of just living with ease. We also just kind of approach our own relationships uh, with just a pursuit of ease, where we are longing for relationships that are easy. If you've noticed, there are a lot of people will gravitate towards their family units, where they hunker down with their family. They only relate with their family, and they're building relationships around the people that know them best, because there's security, there's comfort, there's an identity that comes with being amongst people who know you best. But there's also with friendships, how we do the same thing, where we gravitate towards people who think like us. We gravitate towards people who are passionate about the same things we're passionate about. We gravitate towards people who have similar values and similar ideals. And we, some of our best friends are people that are just easy to talk to. They know us. I know for me, my best friend, uh, he's 10 years older than I am. And he, uh, we have kids about the same age, similar life experiences. And it's no wonder that he's also in ministry. And every now and then, my wife is just like, you need to talk to Jeff. You just need to go hang out with Jeff just because I get tightly wound. But there is an ease that comes with this relationship where he knows me and I know him very well. And so it makes conversation comfortable. There's a safety. There's an identity here knowing who he is. But one of the things that we also see is that this is how we also build relationships in the church, where we are gravitating towards people who are passionate about the same things that we are, where we are longing for safety and comfort from others. And so we build relationships in the church, which is great, which is what we should be doing. But sometimes these relationships become more like cliques or what we could call holy huddles where it is a certain group of people that you only gravitate towards, a certain group of people that you only connect with. And what happens is as new people come into the church, 
hard for them to find community because people have established huddles. But what we do is we, we build ourselves around the people that are most like us. We long for that comfort. We long for that ease. Some of us would probably say, well, I don't, I don't really like change, so I want to hang out with the people that I know best. But it's not really that we don't like change, we just like what's comfortable. And so when we look at our relationships, we are drawn towards the relationships that are ease. We, draw, we are drawn towards uh, uh, communities that are easy. We, draw, we are drawn towards practices that are easy and that make our lives just kind of stable and safe and secure. But what if God is calling us to something deeper? What if God is calling us to something better? And I think we could say that God doesn't want us living in a place of comfort where we are longing for what's easy, where we are longing for what's comfortable, but I think he's calling us to do something better than that. And so I think the question that we're facing this morning is, as it pertains to our comfort, who do we trust? Do we trust ourselves? Do we trust all of the things that we know that we can build? Are we trusting what God has for us? Our sermon series the past few months has been through the book of Acts, where we've been looking at how the early church has become a movement where they have expanded from just 120 people in a small room to tens of thousands of people over the course of 10 years where we are at in our passage today. And God has been moving the church to not to be an institution where they are coming for religious services, religious practices, but God has been moving individuals along and been, he's been carrying them along with the Holy Spirit to build his church. Peter has been an instrumental person in each phase of the church. He's going to play a, an important part in our passage today. But what we are seeing is that God uses people who are willing to be outside of their comfort and to step into what God has for them. And so up to this point in the book of Acts, in Acts 10, every single member of the church has, is a Jew. And uh, we are introduced to this idea of Gentiles and where the gospel is coming to Gentiles. If you're not familiar with biblical language of Jews and Gentiles, really simply a Gentile is everyone who's not ethnically Jewish. And so they have been born and raised in everywhere except for Israel. Uh, today we would probably say Christians and non-Christians if we were to, to make that similar but what we see in our passage today is that there's going to be a major shift, a major shift from the gospel moving from an ethnic Jewish religion to being a religion for all people. And this is where all of us here, we are all impacted because of Acts 10. We are here as part of the body of Christ because of this passage. But as you look at just kind of the, the nature of just Judaism, there's a, 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 the Jews are striving to maintain just a life of comfort, and they are directly resulting in trusting themselves. But what we're going to see this morning through this passage is that God is going to do something amazing through the life of Peter as people are willing to leave behind what's comfortable. 
So verse 1 introduces us to this guy named Cornelius. And right away, we should know that this is a guy who's Italian. Verse 1 tells us that he's part of the Italian cohort. Uh, we're told that he's served in the military. We're actually given his rank. He's a centurion. Again, if you're not familiar with the, uh, with the Roman military and how all of these uh, rankings work, a centurion is basically someone who oversees 100 different people. He's in the military. He's overseeing 100 people. He's a, he's a pretty high-ranking officer, and he's paid pretty well. So he's well off, and he's stationed in Judea. But we also told, uh, in verse 2, more importantly, that what, how, we're, how Cornelius is described, he's described as being a God-fearing man, where he is devout in his practices, and he's pursuing God through religious practices. I think it's fair to say that Cornelius, at this point in his life, is he is searching after God. He is longing to know God. He is longing for salvation. And so somewhere along the line, he is pursuing God, and he has developed these habits, uh, these, these religious habits. And we're told that he does too, and they are the most religious practices for Jews. That is giving to the poor, and that is also being devoted to prayer. But because Cornelius is a Gentile, he is barred access from the most fundamental Jewish practice, and that is sacrificing in the temple. He is an outcast. He is rejected from the Jewish people. He has no access to know God personally. And the Jews, if we were to put it in modern, language, in modern terms, they would be looking at Cornelius as the guy who has just full of, na- uh, of face tattoos and neck tattoos. He looks like he's rough around the edges, and the Jews want nothing to do with him. They are rejecting him because of the fact that he's a Gentile. And so this is who God is going to be bringing the gospel to. For the Jews, if, if they were to associate with, with Cornelius, if they were to have a friendship with Cornelius, you know, other Jews would be like, what are you doing hanging around with this guy? He's rough, he kind of, he's kind of smelly, he swears a lot. Like, he's not who good Jews should be hanging around. But despite living as an outcast, Cornelius desires to know God for himself. And as the passage develops, this man is ready to hear the gospel. And this is where God meets him in verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision of an angel of God coming to him and saying, Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. The angel is basically telling Cornelius that God is pleased with him, that God sees his religious practices, and that God wants to save him. And so through this angel that God is, is instructing this angel to send men to Joppa to, to retrieve Peter and bring him back to where Cornelius is. And so what we see through this is that God meets us when we seek him. Cornelius is seeking after God to the best of his abilities God is meeting him right where he's at. 
Again, this man is the least likely person not only to hear from God, he's the least likely person to receive salvation for himself. And so then God not only meets us when we seek him, but God calls us to move beyond what's comfortable. This is where Peter comes into the narrative, and Peter has been going around and he's been preaching the gospel to Jews in Joppa and in all over Judea, and he has been preaching the gospel faithfully as he's been doing the last 10 years. And again, uh, just as God met Cornelius, God is going to be meeting Peter exactly where he is. Verse 9 tells us that Cornelius' servants are entering Joppa at the very same time that Peter is going to pray at lunchtime. And you see just the background of this, of just the Holy Spirit bringing all of these pieces together for all of these things to click at the right time. But let me just say, lunchtime is probably the worst time to go praying, just because I know for myself it's just a recipe for disaster because I'm thinking about food. I'm thinking about what the food will taste like. I'm thinking about how it will sit in my, in my stomach. And so this is the absolute worst time for Peter to be going to pray, but because he's a man Devoted to prayer, this is the time that he chooses. And this is where God sends a vision of an angel, not of an, God sends a vision of a tremendous sheet just coming down from heaven. And the sheet has all kinds of animals. It's got cows, it's got pigs, it's got sheep, it's got snakes, it's got spiders and birds. This sheet, this tremendous sheet, is representing all of creation. Not only is this just a crazy vision, but through this, we hear God saying in verse 13, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And Peter immediately injects, interjects, and he says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. For a devout Jew, this is probably one of the most challenging commands God could give to Peter to eat unclean food, or rather to eat unclean animals. And Peter's objection to God is firmly rooted from the dietary restrictions in Leviticus 11, where we find God saying, this animal is clean, this animal is not clean, to touch this animal makes you unclean, to eat this animal makes you defiled. And so God is now going back on that dietary restriction. And this command was originally given as a way to make Jews and Gentiles distinct from one another. But like all religious people do, we take God's commands, what he has told us to do, and we like to add rules and checklists right next to it. And so throughout the course of history, Rabbis and Jewish leaders have added all kinds of rules in addition to these dietary restrictions, saying, well, okay, you can't eat. You can't eat at 6 o'clock on a Friday. You can't eat that on, you can't eat meat 6 o'clock on a Friday. All right, good. You can't eat food with, with Gentiles, because that's, that's a big no-no. And so they would add all kinds of rules in addition to God's commands. And then rather than following the commands, they're following the checklist. 
They're following the rules. They're making, they're living a they're living out in their comfort of their own religion. We do the same thing today. Okay, um, I can't listen to Metallica unless I'm by myself. If there are other Christians, I can't listen to Metallica because it's not Christian. Or I have to make sure like I'm posting my, my daily reading and all of the coffee and set it up. I have to post that on Instagram so that people see how religious I am. Or I come to church and I do all the right things so that people can see that I'm devout, that I'm devoted to God. I'm religious. Or, you know, I do all of the things that is expected of me because I want others to look at me and to be like, man, Jake is so so holy. Jake is so righteous. We build rules and commands for ourselves not seeing the greater thing that God is wanting for us, that he wants us to know him and to love him. We put on this picture that we're a good Christian, that we can't eat or do certain things because others will think poorly of us. This is where we fall into kind of this rote comfort of religion. And this is exactly where Peter is as well, where he is falling into just the comfort of being a Jew, falling into the comfort of just, well, this is, I can't do this because my religion prohibits me from this. In, a, in refusing to obey God and the command to rise, kill, and eat, he is effectively saying safe in his holy huddle following a religious practice. This is how God responds in verse 15. He says, what God has made clean do not call common. It's through this vision that God is declaring all creation clean. Verse 16 tells us that this vision happens three times, and I'm presuming that, it, that Peter has the same objection three times. After this vision, the, cl- the cloud is taken up to heaven, and then it ends. Clearly, the vision is not only about food, it's about something else. But Peter's trying to understand what this vision means. Uncomfortable. He's confused. He's uncertain of what he just heard and saw, and he's trying to make sense of all of these things because in a lot of ways, God is confronting a religious attitude that Peter has. But, you know, Peter has no time to reflect, no time to dwell, no time to meditate on this meaning. Then Cornelius' men are knocking on the door. Verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius stood at the gate. So not only is Peter confused and uncomfortable by this vision, now he has some Gentiles that are at his doorstep. Again, for a devout Jew, you don't associate with Gentiles. You do nothing, you, you want nothing to do with them because they're dirty, because they're stinky, because they're heathens, because they are representing everything that you are not. These are the very people that God has at his door. And then verse 19, and while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise 
and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. The key here is that the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter amidst his confusion, amidst his uncertainty, amidst his discomfort, assuring him that these men were sent by the Holy Spirit and that Peter is to go with no hesitation. So not only do we see that God meets us where we are when we seek him, not only does he call us beyond what is comfortable, but that God also works through our discomfort. What God is doing here for Peter is he wants Peter to break free from the comfort of his religion in order to do something amazing through him. Peter is rightly confused about the series of events. You don't normally have a vision coming down with all kinds of animals, and you don't have this command to contradict what you have grown up knowing. Yet this is where the Holy Spirit speaks to him directly, and he is still unsure of just what is going on. So you can see his uncertainty in verse 21 as he asks Cornelius' his servants, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? Why are you here? I'm just here, and I'm just praying. I'm just wanting to know, and I want to talk to God, and you're here at my doorstep. Why? And so then verse 22 repeats everything from Cornelius' point of view about the angel, about the, uh, sending the men to Joppa to retrieve Peter. And let me just say, anytime that you find repeated details in a narrative like this, the author is wanting us to see something very important. He is emphasizing that this is important. He wants us to pay even more attention. And again, this has only been less than an hour. He was just going upstairs to pray, and then this weird vision happens, and then these Gentiles are at his door, and now they're saying, come with us, and the Holy Spirit's like, go with them, and he's like, I don't know anything of, of what, I don't understand any of this. But we begin to see Peter is slowly understanding that this vision has more to do with people than it does with food. The story's not over. God still has an amazing work to accomplish here. Verse 24. And on the following day, they returned to the entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. By this point in the story, four days have passed from the first initial vision of the angel coming to Cornelius. And he has had four days to gather all of his friends, to gather all of his family, and to say, I am going to hear the message of salvation. Come to my home, come listen, and you will be saved. I don't know if that's what he said, but I would imagine that he is just ecstatic. Not only has God talked to him, God is inviting him into relationship. He just has to listen. So verses 25 through 27 tells us that Peter is entering Cornelius' house. And this is a big deal. Jews never entered into the house of, of a Gentile because 
It would make them dirty. They would become a sinner just by associating with sinners. But we should, come, we should be reminded of the fact of whose house did Jesus enter often. He entered the houses of the sinners, of the tax collectors, of the prostitutes. Jesus met and engaged people where they were with the hope of the gospel and loving them outrageously. Peter even acknowledges this discomfort as he says in verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So he's getting it. <laughs> we can say a lot of things about Peter, probably having a thick skull is one of them, but he's, he's getting it. In verse 29, he says, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. He's still confused. I ask then why you sent me. He's getting a little bit more of the puzzle, but it still is, it's not making sense to him. He is still wanting to hold on to the comfort of his religion. He's stating that it's unlawful for him to associate with the worst people in society, the Gentiles, the heathens, the pagans, people who want nothing to do with God. He can't even be near them. He can't eat food with them. He can't associate with them. He's trying to hold on to the comfortability of what he has and what he knows. And God is pushing him and prodding him along in this way. But he's also really just wanting to make sense what God is doing in this confusion, in this discomfort. And so verses 32 or 30 and 32 once again tell us Cornelius' view and all of the things that have happened, and he is eagerly anticipating the message of the gospel. We see this in verse 33. He says, Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. What I, what I just love about this passage is like as Peter comes into the house, uh, Cornelius just is so excited to see him. He falls down and worships him. And Peter gets him up and tells him that he, he shouldn't do that. And then Peter looks around the room and he just sees a room full of people. Not only is this room full of Gentiles, but have you ever like walked into a classroom and every single student is at their desk before you're even there, pins up, eyes on you, and they're fully alert on everything that you are saying and everything that you're doing. This is exactly the environment that Peter walks in. Every single person is eagerly anticipating what Peter's going to say to them. And then this... This is the environment that things finally click for Peter. He realizes that God is changing his religious paradigm. Look what he says. He says in verse 34, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Is that this 
exact moment. The gospel is not just for Jews. The gospel is for everyone. And God is breaking down Peter's religion, his comfort, in order to get him to this place. And now he understands that he has one task in front of him. He can preach, he can pray, or he can die. And he decides to preach the gospel to the five days prior whom he would consider as the least worthy of hearing the gospel message. And this is where Peter understands that the gospel message breaks us free from the comfort of religion. And everything that God has been doing in Peter's heart for the last four days has been leading to this exact moment. He had to break free from his safety. He had to break free from his identity. He had to break free from his comfort in order to proclaim the hope to Gentiles. God's desire is to open the kingdom of heaven to the Gentiles at this exact moment. So seeing that the people don't know Jesus, they're hungry for the gospel, they're hungry to know who he is, he proceeds to share the gospel with them. And so what he does in the next couple of a few verses is he highlights Jesus. This is the first time in Acts 10 where Jesus is even mentioned, and he is using Jesus as a way to show uh, what the gospel is. So he's going to talk about the gospel in three different ways. He first talks about how the gospel is all about the life of Jesus. He says in verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is a very short summary of the entire life of Jesus. 33 years we are given that he does good works, that he heals, and that God is with him. So for us to understand what the gospel is, we have to first start with who Jesus is. But he moves on very quickly, and he begins to say that the gospel is also all about the death of Jesus. In verse 39, he says, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And he's arguing that Jesus' death was necessary to pay for the penalty of our sins. Through his death, we can actually find forgiveness. Through his death, we can find a new identity. Through his death, we can find peace with God. But not only does Peter emphasize the death of Jesus, but he also emphasizes that the gospel is all about the resurrection of Jesus. Again, very quickly, verse 40, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear to those who had been chosen by God as witnesses after he rose from the dead. And he is basically saying that the, the gospel is all about the resurrection. Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. For we cannot be saved apart from the life, the, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And he is sharing these with the Gentiles because that's all he knows how to do is to preach the gospel. Without the resurrection, there's no power, there's no hope for their future, there's no freedom for our lives. And so then he tells us that the gospel of Jesus is to be proclaimed to all people. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify 
that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. According to Peter, the gospel is all about Jesus. We can only be saved through the person and the work of Christ. And so he understands at this very moment he needs to share the gospel because these Gentiles are seeking after God. He preaches the gospel because that's the only hope that they have, not only to know God, but the only hope that they have to find freedom for their lives. They need to be drawn into a relationship with Jesus, and he is preaching the gospel out of an outrageous love for these individuals. And we see in verse 43, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He says, it's all about Jesus. And then he says, belief in Jesus comes by putting our trust and our faith in him. And we'll see next week what happens, but Peter can't even finish his thought here before the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, and we'll talk about that next week. But here, Peter sees that God desires to bring freedom for our souls, freedom from the bondage of sin, freedom from the comfort of our religion. He wants, us to, he wants to set us free from all manners of sin, of, of addiction, that only requires one thing, and that is salvation in Jesus. And for Peter, this meant that the gospel had to push him outside of his comfort in order to bring the gospel to the least worthy, the least deserving people. It made him confront his religious practices, his comfort of religion, the comfort of his life, to trust him and to make him known to others. God had been changing Peter's paradigm of religion and identity, moving him from being concerned more of what, moving him from what people thought Peter should do versus what he should, what God thinks of him. And I know for myself, like I need my own paradigm of my own religion to be shaped and formed, not to be concerned about what people think about me be more concerned about what God thinks of me. And this is where we find just the, the, the point of this whole passage is that God is able to do amazing things in our lives when we break free from what's comfortable. I'm reminded of my own life when uh, just a few years ago I was newly married with my wife and I was selling CPAPs and CPAP accessories and I was, I was making a killing. I was working 45 to 50 hours a week. I was engaging with people. And I have never had a more financially secure job in my life. And my wife and I had been going to a church out in Highland. And it was, it was good. We enjoyed it. Uh, for my wife, uh, she was very involved with, with the worship team. And I was kind of using an excuse, my comfort, uh, uh, my comfort of my job is really an excuse to not engage in relationship with these individuals. I was looking at myself and saying, oh, I, I, don't, I, don't have enough, I don't have enough time to 
to invest myself in people, to know people, to engage with people. I was really showing up on a Sunday morning, really doing the bare minimum, and just kind of checking out. And through this experience, like, I was, I was okay. I was comfortable. I was happy. I had a good job. I knew I kind of wanted to go into ministry, and so I was looking at different schools. But I was just comfortable being where I was at. And because of my job security, my wife decided to quit her job. And uh, within a week, I got laid off. My employers came in and said, hey, you know, some laws have passed. And they kind of gave me the, the, whole, the whole run. But they laid me off. And within a week, my wife and I are unemployed. And so what do we do? I believe that God had orchestrated all of those details to put us in a place of discomfort in order for us to trust what God was going to do next in our lives. We decided to move to Spokane. Uh, it took, it was kind of a, just like, okay, well, what do we do? Like, how do we find a job? How do we find housing? How do we find all of these things? And there was really no promise of success. There was no promise that God was going to make us prosper. But what God was doing is he was calling us to trust him through our discomfort. And as we ended up in Spokane, we found a job, got enrolled in school, and we were able to find housing. And the Lord provided for us. And so even though I didn't know what success looked like, I knew that God was going to be present with me. Sometimes God pushes us outside of our comfort in order for us to seek him, in order for us to trust him, in order for us to know him. But behind this trust, God is inviting us to take risks for his kingdom. It was a risk for Peter to step into this house of Gentiles and to preach the gospel. But he was doing this to experience greater joy and love and peace and all of this. But it took, has to take God breaking us free from what's comfortable to, for us to see that God is going to do amazing things in our lives. So, God called Peter to move the gospel beyond the Jews, beyond his, the comfort of his religion, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles in order to trust him, in order to do amazing things through him. The question is, what risk is God calling you to take for his kingdom? One of the things that we say at Restoration Church, is that we love outrageously. This means that we intentionally pursue the individuals who aren't like us. We pursue the people who are different than us, the people who we would not even want to associate with, whether that's because of their politics, whether that's because of their philosophies or their worldview, the people that we would look at and we would say, there's no hope for that person to be saved. To love outrageously 
is to intentionally seek those individuals we want nothing to do with. For some of us, this may be stepping into the lives of those in the LGBTQ movement, where we see them and we disagree with their philosophy, we disagree with their worldview, we disagree with their lifestyle, but to say we step into relationship with them, to associate with them, to pursue them with the hope of the gospel. That's risky. That's risky because of my church friends going to say. What are my family members going to say as I'm taking the risk of investing in individuals? Just this week, I heard of a clinic here in Yakima that sees um, patients of all across the spectrum, homeless, transgender, homosexual, all of this. And what I loved about this clinic is not only do, they, do the doctors pray for each and every client, but they make a point of sitting down and eating with their clients, sharing a meal, hearing about life. That is risky. That is something that is uncomfortable. That is something that just speaks to just the core of our religion of we don't do that. But if we believe the gospel, if we know the gospel, we, know, we should understand that the gospel is for everybody. But it doesn't just mean that we step into the lives of those that are unlike us. It also means that we take risks in volunteering with gospel-centered organizations like Love, Inc., like UGM, like Life Choices, and any other organization of where they are bringing the gospel, contextualizing it to people, and we are taking the risk of entering into people's lives. It's messy. It's not always easy. But God is present with us through that. So the gospel breaks free from our comfort when we, when we t- desire to take the gospel outside of our holy huddles, outside of what's comfortable. But as we saw God calling Cornelius into a relationship with him to experience his goodness and salvation. If you're like Cornelius this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with God, what's stopping you from believing in Jesus? What's stopping you from taking that step of faith to believe and to trust in the gospel and to have a relationship with Jesus? Cornelius had to send men to bring Peter to him in order to believe. There's, there are no barriers for us. If we do not have a relationship with Jesus, there are no barriers for us. Let me just say, don't leave here today unless you have made that personal commitment to know Jesus for yourself. And as I close, I have one last question for you. What does your devotional life look like? You see, both Cornelius and Peter, they were both diligently seeking God in prayer, and God met both of them in very different ways. He came to them in prayer. He came to them as they were wrestling with life, wrestling with of, of how to do any of these things. And what, for us, 
let me just say uh, what I have seen in the lives of people nine times out of ten. All of the frustration and the, just the, the angst of life is often the result of us not pursuing God in prayer. And so as we wrestle with what it looks like for you to take a risk for the kingdom of God, we cannot do that apart from a growing devotional life in Christ. If we want God to speak to us, we need to take time to speak with him through prayer. Highly unlikely that he's going to give us any direction in life if we're not seeking him first. And here's the greatest promise I find of just what it looks like for our devotional life. And this is in James 4.8 when he says, when he promises us that when we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. We can, dev- we can grow in our devotional life because God wants to know us. We can grow in our relationship with God because he wants to speak to us. So as we look at our devotional life, it is predicated on our just coming to God first and seeking him. The more that we take a step of faith outside of what's comfortable, outside of what's convenient, outside of what's easy, the more that God is faithful to meet us where we are, speak to us, to lead us in the direction of prosperity, where his ways are better than ours.